Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 49, Ethan Froome. <laughs> Okay. You couldn't even get through the intro. <laughs> it's it's because I'm like I know what this discussion is gonna be like, so Stella's I guess NPR voice. Who I would Share. I we wonder what that would be control. like if I were an NPR host. Like they would fire me. Okay, hold on. <laughs> you are not Sarah Caning. Let's just say that you actually have a better voice than Sarah Caning, but man. Some of them have really pleasant voices. Anyways, okay. <sighs> Episode 49, Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. I want you to take me down again. I never want to leave this hill. Wait. Why, Ethan? I want to go and find... I want to feel you hold me, Matt. My mother and I were the first to reach them. We were walking home. They laid Maddie in our house, upstairs, in my room. We were great friends. She was going to have been my bridesmaid. I haven't ever heard before or since any human being moan like Maddie did. May God have pity on them. Hello and welcome. Hopefully you've brought your bobsleds with you. This is Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books literature and sled rides and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that of course we have both read and determine whether it is worthy of its reputation and is it in fact required reading so i'm stella i'm leading us this time and uh to his chagrin this guy's with me i knew what i was getting myself into but joining me on this sleigh ride is is tom van <laughs> Right into the tree. Oh man, alive! <laughs> oh boy. Uh, this will be interesting, and it's 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 a pretty depressing holiday themed story, I guess. It sure <laughs> is. I was I was in a. Well, we're both busy. Like we don't make. We're not gonna shy about that. And so I was thinking of what what's a shorter novel that 
we could read. And I didn't think it was as short as it actually was. I was thinking maybe it was like 150, so it was 74 pages. And yeah. I, I thought, oh, that's that's good. But I was also trying to think of what's another one that's around this type of holiday. But I knew also that you're not a fan of it. So going in, I was like, <laughs> I'm so sorry, but we're going to do this. I believe this is a novella. I, it uh, is, novella, yeah. yeah. How would you, which is a good point... It was actually a question I was thinking about. What would you say is the difference between a novella and a short story? I would imagine. Since you're okay, so so I would if I'm if I'm thinking about this, um, I would imagine that the because uh, there are long short stories, but the scope of the setting and the scope of the time frame, like short stories, tend to be short in time frame, like it's a day or two, whereas this is um, this is uh, a significantly longer amount of time. Yeah. And and it has a slightly yeah, Years, so I I, I believe think, it's just yeah. the, the the larger scope of it in terms of time frame and um it does have few characters that you could use this as a short story. Like you could do a short story around these three, but there's there's too much going on and there's too much time that has to pass for this to be kind of that short story genre. Gotcha. Well, I mean, we're we're jumping into it mm-hmm. so quickly, but I wanted to say that as of this recording, we will soon have a new president so the culture of our nation may mm-hmm. change do you how do you feel do you feel okay as of recording today we're a week out from when the election was held so you know it's it's the middle of uh, it's the beginning of november relieved yet still cautious because of what the headlines have been surrounding um the uh, lack of cooperation that the current um, Mm. administration is giving to the incoming administration and the, you know, outright falsified claims of of fraud and all these other kind of shenanigans they're trying to pull. For what reason beyond uh, political capital in some regard, I don't know, but it's it's hard not to re-hit the panic button when you're seeing headlines like that. I, some, there there have been moments over the last couple of days where I felt like completely panicked and and there are moments mm. over the last couple of days where I'm like where I have to the rational side of me takes over and says no like we have a system for this and you know you have to you know because I mean there's there's a lot that I will criticize about this country but the fact that we for 200 and since 1787 so 230 years, 233 years we have had a peaceful transition of power between leaders which is not something um and that did not require and did not require ascension in terms of you know like monarchy or anything like that and that's pretty remarkable if you Mm -hmm. consider the history of of regime change throughout the world so not trying not to get too political here but also, oh, like, sure. I find it a point of patriotic pride that we have that baked into our, you know, for all the flaws that America has, it's one thing I think that is something to be very proud of. And I, I, I it, it pains me when that is undermined in any regard. Yeah, I'm, I mean, whew, yeah, we'll see what happens. I, I would also say that I look at the news with trepidation mm-hmm. and just think, oh, what's going to happen? There's always some yeah. new headline coming out. And, you know, we can always have hope, by, I suppose, an optimism, like maybe it'll it'll all be OK. Mm. But I at least have some hope that we can, you know, revitalize our country and perhaps 
start looking after those people who really need to be looked after and and there's more empathy throughout so that's that's what i'm hoping that we take what we learned in these past four years and see like what can we do to to make this better because we've really seen i think the cracks and the brokenness in our country so how do we fix that so that's what i'm i'm hoping for but yeah we have a lot of work to do you know regardless of what the outcome was we have a lot of work to do and you know i think that we've i think that's what you're talking about is when we we have maybe individually benefited from what's been going on and how much we've learned and how much we've kind of empathy we've gained and things how introspection we've done and stuff like that so so yeah so there 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 is a positive to all this but it is like i say the trepidation is a great word for it you're just like my anxiety is is really fun lately too so (laughs) Mm, yeah yep yep and here's hoping, you know, everyone listening to this, continue to wash your hands and wear masks and, and be safe out there, especially with flu season coming. Who knows what, you know, everything will kind of flare up. So just be safe out Yeah, there. definitely. And, yeah, so these people in our novel novella that we're doing, they didn't have nope. to deal with that in this cold winter climate that we're talking about. So we're going to be talking about some Ethan Frome. So I don't know your history i just know your taste and your opinion on it what is your history with this particular novella i was assigned this in the 10th grade so this is on my books to reread from high school and middle school or sorry junior high and high school list uh i read it in 10th grade at f uh in mrs Tabor's 10th grade english class i believe it was sandwiched between our look at either between Caesar and Mockingbird or after Mockingbird, but before like night in Fahrenheit 451. And I don't know why I remember that in such detail, but I have the same (laughs) memory that Michael Bailey does uh, in that I can remember random, random things, yet I keep my car keys in the same place so I don't lose them. So, but yeah, and and I did not, didn't really like it. It was now, it, Mm. it does not, it did not qualify for the three weeks of my life that I will never get back book. That one is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, but but I, I really didn't like this, and it was just kind of this. I was it was kind of this book that I was just like, once we got through it, I was like, good, and then moved on. The only other Edith Wharton novel I've read, which I really enjoyed and would like to read again because it's been twenty years, was uh, The Age of Innocence, which itself has mm. has a uh, excellent Martin Scorsese film. With so Winona Ryder, uh, yeah. with Winona Ryder and okay. uh, Daniel Day Lewis and Michelle Pfeiffer. So, but you know that. So, I, so I have nothing against Edith Wharton. I just didn't, didn't when I first read this. Just did not like it. And um, yeah. So we'll we'll see how we'll see how things go after uh, after your background and synopsis. Indeed, for me, I read this. My let me think about this. I think it was my spring semester of my first year of college. It was an mm. English lit class and it was realism in literature i believe was the subtitle and so this was one we also did glenn gary glenn ross the alchemist i'm trying to think of oh that northanger abbey that's when i read that one so that is when i read this and it's interesting because i knew that you did not like it and i remember that there was a 
young woman, also in my class, a peer, and she had read it in high school, and she also didn't like it. So I might ask later on why, and maybe, you know, this is just looking at a small little case study, but mm. it seems to be a polarizing novel. It's not that people are meh. It's either they like it or they really, that they did not like it. I think I think I just found it boring. Okay. When I was in high school, it was because we had come from, if I'm thinking about the works we read in sophomore year, I loved Caesar. I loved To Kill a Mockingbird. And we had Night by Elie Wiesel, which was, I mean, I taught it for the better part of nine years as well. So, I mean, it's just, it's just has always had an impact on me. And then we had Fahrenheit 451, which is one of my favorite books of all time. We talked about that. This was the one that it was just kind of at the bottom of the list, and I I think I just found it like really boring because there wasn't mm. really I didn't feel like there was a lot going on, and yeah, so that's probably what it was. I could definitely let's just say I mean I could kind of get on board with you if this were longer than for me seventy four pages, then I mm. absolutely would be like um there's nothing happening, <laughs> but I think it's it's short page count certainly helps out. Gotcha for sure. Yeah. Okay, and I actually, I've got the Norton Critical Edition, which I did not read the essays at the end as I probably did, I guess, initially, but those are always yeah. fun to have, and there are some footnotes sometimes, which I thought of you, because they had some footnotes on specific cultural details, and I thought, if mm. only they had that for the pump room for Tom. Oh, God, the pump room. <laughs> I I have a, actually, I got this out of the school library, because I happened to be at, uh, at my school a few weeks ago, and um, it is, they call the Library of America editions, where it's like this black cover with um, the author's name and script in a red, white, and blue stripe going across it. And it's actually novellas and other writings. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six novellas in this, of which there is Ethan Frome. So. Okay. Well, I guess we'll get into talking about the book and then the history and life of the author. And I actually, I feel like I went on a reputable site. <laughs> it's actually called The Mount, which is Edith Wharton's home it's i mean it seems like you know it's from the historical society and it's all about her so whoo here we go so edith wharton was born into a tightly controlled society <laughs> i love that at a time when women were discouraged from achieving anything beyond a proper marriage wharton broke through these strictures to become one of america's greatest writers author of the age of innocence ethan from in the house of mirth she wrote over 40 books in 40 years including authoritative works on architecture gardens interior design and travel she was the first woman awarded the pulitzer prize for fiction an honorary doctorate of letters from Yale university and a full membership in the american academy of arts and letters she was born into a wealthy New York family, the third child and only daughter of George Frederick and Luc <gasps> Lucretia Rhinelander Jones. The young Edith spent much of her childhood in Europe, mainly France, Germany, Italy, developing both her gift for languages and a deep appreciation for beauty in art, architecture, and literature. She returned to New York in 1872, and that's where her literary life began. Her parents engaged the talented Anna Catherine Ballman as her governess, and she was allowed access to her father's library, and at age 16, Verses, her volume of poems, was published privately. Gosh, makes you feel like a, 
I don't know, like an incompetent fool, unable to do things. She's publishing at 16. Yeah, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein at 18. I mean, we are all (laughs) slackers. Yeah, we failed. At age 17, Edith came out into society, making the rounds of dances and parties in Newport and New York, observing the rituals of her privileged world, a world she would later gleefully skewer in in her fiction. In a world, I should say, that we don't really see much of in Ethan from. Her childhood ended with the death of her father in March of 82, followed by two romantic disappointments. Still unmarried at the age of 23, Edith was rapidly approaching old maid status. Roll my eyes. In 85, she married Edward Robbins Wharton, also called Teddy. Though imperfectly suited for, de- for each other, the couple filled their early married years with travel, houses, and dogs. While living in Newport, Wharton honed her design skills, co-authoring with Ogden Codman Jr. her first major book, a surprisingly successful nonfiction work on design and architecture called The Decoration of Houses. In 1901, eager to escape Newport, she bought 113 acres in Lenox, then designed and built the Mount. There we go, a home that would meet her needs as designer, gardener, hostess, and above all, writer. Every aspect of the estate, including its gardens, architecture, and interior design, evokes the spirit of its creator. She would live at the Mount a short 10 years, and here she would write some of her greatest works, including The House of Mirth and Ethan Frome. All the while, her marriage disintegrated under the weight of Teddy Wharton's mental instability. She sold the Mount in 1911, they divorced in 1913, and then she moved permanently to France while Teddy returned to his sister's home in Lenox. In 1914, when the war broke out, the Great War, Edith was wealthy, famous, recently divorced, and living in her favorite city, Paris. Instead of withdrawing to the safety of England or returning to the United States, Warren chose to stay and devote herself to creating a complex network of charitable and humanitarian organizations. She established workrooms for unemployed seamstresses, convalescent homes for tuberculosis sufferers, hostels for refugees, and schools for children fleeing war-torn Belgium. As a writer, Wharton was intent on witnessing the realities of war and was one of a handful of journalists and writers allowed on the front lines. In 1916, Wharton received the French Legion of Honor for her war work. At the end of the war, she moved out of Paris to Pavilion Colombe, a suburban villa in the village of Saint-Brie-sous-Forêt. <laughs> You're the French major. In 1921, her novel of Old New York, The Age of Innocence, won the Pulitzer Prize for, prize for fiction. And then for the rest of her life, she divided her time between the home that she established, let's see, Chateau Saint-Clair, which was a restored convent in the south of France, and then her, her other pavilion that she had. She devoted her life to friends and dogs, writing prolifically, traveling, and gardening, and she only returned to the United States twice after her move to France, the final time in 1923, to receive her honorary doctorate from Yale. And she died in 1937 at age 75 at her pavilion, and she's buried uh, in Versailles, or Versailles, close to her good friend Walter Berry. And from Wikipedia, and at first I thought, did Tom write this? Because I put this was like last week, and I remember, no, I did this. It says reception since dot, 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 Tom. (laughs) Because I was curious. I wondered how the reception was, since I do know that there are people, it seems polarizing. So this is from Wikipedia. It says, the New York Times called Ethan from a compelling and haunting story. 
Edith Wharton was able to write an appealing book and separate it from her other works where her characters in Ethan Frome are not of the elite upper class. However, the problems that the characters endure are still consistently the same, where the protagonist has to decide whether or not to fulfill their duty or follow their heart. That sounds like Antigone. She began writing Ethan Frome in the early 1900s when she was still married. The novel was criticized by Lionel Trilling as lacking in moral or ethical significance. Trilling wrote that the ending is terrible to contemplate, but that, quote, the mind can do nothing with it, can only endure it. Yikes. Jeffrey Lilburn notes that some find, quote, the suffering endured by Wharton's characters is excessive and unjustified, end quote. But others see the difficult moral questions addressed and note that it, quote, provides insightful commentary on the American economic and cultural realities that produced and allowed such suffering, end quote. Wharton was always careful to label Ethan Frome as a tale rather than a novel. Critics did take note of this when reviewing the book. Elizabeth Amons or Ammons compared the work to fairy tales. She found a story that is, quote, as moral as a classic fairy tale, end quote, and that functions as a, quote, realistic social criticism, end quote. The moral concepts, as described by Amons, are revealed with all the brutality of Starkfield's winters. Comparing Maddie Silver and Xena Frome, Amons suggests that the Maddies will grow as frigid and crippled as the Xenas so long as such women remain isolated and dependent. Wharton cripples Maddie, says Lilburn, but has her survive in order to demonstrate the cruelty of this culture surrounding the women in that period. That's a bit of a spoiler. And then there, the adaptations, which I found interesting, the it was adapted in 93 into a film of the same name, and it was directed by John Madden and starring Liam Neeson, Patricia Arquette, Joan Allen, and Tate Donovan. I have not seen that, though the cast sounds very interesting and it might be worthwhile just given the names. And then Kathy Marson adapted the book to a one-act ballet titled Snowblind for the San Francisco Ballet. And that ballet premiered in 2018. Have you seen that film by any chance? No. Um, okay. I remember my English teacher mentioning it. And I think it was the first time I'd ever heard of Patricia Arquette. And I knew Liam Neeson because he had been in the movie Dark Man. Yeah, and I've I've actually never seen the movie. I'm kind of curious as to whether or not it's any good. Yeah, John Madden is a director who's um who who's not a um obscure director, and and I think he's won a couple of awards or at least gotten some acclaim for his uh for his work. So it might not it might not be too bad. I mean, it seems like just by those names that it probably. Yeah. I mean, if you don't like the subject matter, then it might be a problem, but I feel like they might portray it well. Yeah, John Madden would go on to direct Shakespeare in Love. Oh. Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and, its, and its sequel, Proof, which was, uh, which I know got some acclaim, you know, some other stuff. So, so yeah, he's he's got, um, so this might be a pretty good, uh, pretty good adaptation. We'll have to take a look at it. Yeah. Okay, so I think we'll get into the plot synopsis. What actually goes on in this novel that causes such consternation for Tom? Here we go. Finding himself laid up in the small New England town of Starkfield for the winter, the narrator sets out to learn about the life of a mysterious local named Ethan Frome, who had a tragic accident some 20 years earlier. After questioning various locals with little result, the narrator finally comes to learn the details of Ethan's smash-up, as the locals call it, when a violent snowstorm forces the narrator into an overnight stay at the Frome household. 
Going back to that tragic year, we find Ethan walking through Snowy Starkfield at midnight. He arrives at the village church where lights in the basement reveal dance. Ethan loiters by the window, transfixed by the sight of a young girl in a cherry-colored scarf. He has come to the church to fetch his wife's cousin, Maddie Silver, who has been living with the Fromes for over a year, helping around the house. Eventually, we learn that Maddie is the girl in the red scarf and the object of Ethan's affection. When the dance lets out, Ethan hangs back to keep his presence unknown. Maddie refuses the offer of a ride from another young man named Dennis Eady and begins to walk home alone. Ethan catches up with her. As they continue on their way together, Ethan experiences a sense of thrill in Maddie's presence, and the tension between the two becomes apparent, or at least on Ethan's side, I will say, because you don't really know until the end about Maddie's thoughts on this whole thing. However, the tension dissipates when they arrive home and Xena or Zenobia, Ethan's sickly, shrewish wife, who has kept a late-night vigil in anticipation of their return, greets them. She regards the dynamic between her husband and her cousin with obvious suspicion, and Ethan goes to bed in a state of unease, without a word to Xena and with thoughts only of Maddie. The next day, Ethan spends the morning cutting wood and returns home to find his wife prepared for a journey. She has decided to seek treatment for her illness in a neighboring town, where she will spend the night with some distant relatives. Excited by the prospect of an evening alone with Maddie, Ethan quickly assents to his wife's plan. He goes into town to make a lumber sale, but he hurries so as to return to Maddie in time for supper. That evening, tensions run high between Ethan and Maddie, although the two never consummate or even verbalize their passions. Again, we don't know what I, I feel like Maddie's perspective on this, but I, you know, this is just one tale of, of the synopsis. Their mutual feelings hang palpably between them, unspoiled by the house's many reminders of the absent Xena. Catastrophe threatens when the cat shatters Xena's favorite pickle dish, which Maddie... <laughs> This is probably why Tom thinks it's boring is because this is one of the most exciting parts is when the pickle dish gets destroyed. And I suppose that seems ridiculous. Okay, so Maddie took this pickle dish out to celebrate their dinner together. But Ethan quickly pieces the shards together and tucks the broken dish back in its place. After supper with Maddie busy at her sewing work, Ethan contemplates an outright demonstration of his affections but he stops short of full disclosure just after 11 the two turn in for the night without so much as touching he only touches a ribbon the next morning or a thread the next morning ethan remains eager to reveal his feelings to maddie but the presence of his hired man jotham powell coupled with his own inhibitions prevent him from making a move ethan makes a run into town to pick up some glue for the pickle dish when he arrives back at the farm expecting to find Maddie alone, she informs him that Zena has returned. Quickly collecting himself, Ethan visits the bedroom to greet his wife. Zena, however, is in no mood for her kindnesses and bitterly informs Ethan that her health is failing rapidly. In light of this fact, Zena announces she plans to replace Maddie with a more efficient hired girl. Ethan privately resents Zena's decision but keeps the bulk of his anger to himself. Going down to the kitchen, Ethan's passions spill over and he kisses Maddie zealously. He tells Maddie of Zena's plan to dismiss her, but their moment together is interrupted by Zena herself, who had originally declined to come down to dinner but has changed her mind. After the meal, Zena discovers the broken pickle dish while in search of some medicines and, in her rage, grows all the more determined to chase Maddie out. That evening, Ethan retreats to his makeshift study where he contemplates the decision that lies before him. Unable to tolerate Maddie's dismissal, but effectively unable to prevent it, Ethan briefly considers eloping with Maddie and even begins to draft a letter of farewell to Zena. 
However, in a sober evaluation of his financial situation, Ethan comes, and I would say also his moral obligation to his wife, Ethan comes to realize the impossibility of running away and falls asleep in a state of hopelessness. At breakfast the next morning, Zena announces the day's plans for Maddie's departure and the arrival of the new hired girl. At mid-morning, having finished his tasks on the farm, Ethan steals into town on a desperate errand. His plan, hatched on the fly, is to make a second attempt to collect an advance from Andrew Hale on a recently delivered lumber load in hopes of financing his elopement with Maddie after all. On his way down the hill, Ethan encounters the Hale sleigh, and in passing, Hale's wife praises him greatly for his patience in caring for the ailing Zena. Her kind words serve to check his plan, and he returns to the farm with a guilty conscience. Against Zena's wishes, Ethan decides to bring Maddie to the station himself. In a fit of nostalgia, he takes her by a roundabout route, and they eventually end up stopping at the crest of a village hill in order to take a sledding adventure they had once proposed but had never undertaken. A successful first run prompts, I, I, I think I probably need to say that, because this doesn't say, there is an elm tree at the bottom of this hill, and it is ever-present in this novel, so it's 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 alluded to a couple times people say you know you got to turn specifically it could be dangerous so i just want to say that before i go into this last bit so it doesn't just pop up all of a sudden at the end yeah it's, yeah it's seated throughout it's Chekhov's. oh it's seated is it <laughs> <laughs> i believe they kiss yeah, or there at is least some they, more passionate kissing. They're, yeah, yeah. Their, their feelings for one another at this point are made, are laid bare. Yes, I would agree. I, yeah. yep. yep, yep, yep. Okay, so they're at the crest of the village hill. They're going to take the sledding adventure. So the successful first run prompts Maddie to suggest a second, but with a different purpose in mind. She asks Ethan to run the sled into the elm tree at the foot of the hill, allowing them to spend their last moments together. Ethan initially rejects her proposal, but is slowly won over, and they take their positions on the sled. And their positions reverse because initially Ethan's the he had been the steerer in the back, and then he switches and is in the front because he said he wants to feel Maddie's arms around her, which I feel like is an important detail, though I didn't ask a question about that, but we could talk about that. So they lock themselves in a final embrace, and then in the wake of the collision, Ethan comes to consciousness dazedly, reaching out to feel the face of the softly moaning Maddie, who opens her eyes and weakly utters his name. And there's also a weight on him, which I wonder what that is. We can, maybe you know. Jumping, I wondered if it was the sled. Jumping forward 20 years, we find ourselves back in the company of the narrator as he enters the From household. Are they dead? Who knows? Inside, or is she dead? Inside, he meets the gaze of two frail and aging women <gasps> and takes stock of the house's squalid conditions. From apologizes for the lack of heat in the house and introduces the narrator to the woman preparing their supper, his wife, Zena, and to the seated, paralyzed woman in the chair by the fire. <gasps> Miss Maddie Silver. The next day, the narrator returns to town where he lodges with Mrs. Ned Hale and her mother, Mrs. Varnum. Sensing their curiosity, he gives a brief account of his evening in the From household, and after supper, he settles down to a more intimate discussion with Mrs. Hale. Together, they mourn the tragic plight of the silent, cursed man, and the two women fated to keep him company 
during the long New England winter nights. And I find her quotation at the very end very powerful. There was one day about a week after the accident when they all thought Maddie couldn't live. Well, I say it's a pity she did. I said it right out to our minister once and he was shocked at me. Only he wasn't with me that morning when she first came to. And I say if she had died, if she'd had died, <laughs> Ethan might have lived. And the way they are now, I don't see there's much difference between the Fromes up at the farm and the Fromes down in the graveyard. Except that down there, they're all quiet and the women have got to hold their tongues. So it's it's a pretty painful situation that they're in. And even the narrator, I think at first glance, can tell that as well. So that is Ethan Frobe. Tom, you didn't like it as sophomore in high school, but did you like it now, a sophomore in life? S- sophomore in life. <laughs> no, I just tried to connect it. I, I liked it more than I thought it would, actually. Oh. Um, it, it read really, really quickly. You know, and you know what I think? I was trying to think of, like, you know, why did I like this more than I liked it when I was 15? And I think it's just, I think the, the problem with the, you're trying to teach the book in high school is that it's not a book for high schoolers. Mm. You know, this is about you can do if you want to do two people who fall in love or who are, are kind of have a forbidden love or or there, there's something going on like that. I mean, granted, they read the play the year before, so it's not like it's an unweird un- weird concept. <laughs> but I don't know, like a story about a marriage and, 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 a, and a possible affair when a lot of your other stories are. It might involve young people or or in this regard, um, you have a better novel the following, you know, in high school, if you read The Great Gatsby, which has a mm. you know similar sort of, you know, um, one guy is, you know, Gatsby's got his feelings for Daisy, et cetera. But I don't know. I think it's because I'm I think it's because I'm older that I can appreciate it more. I think it's because I liked A Doll's House so much and it has very similar sort of very realistic beats to mm-hmm. it you know the setting mm-hmm. is very realistic the characters are very realistic and i think i i gained a little bit more of an appreciation for 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 not from for wharton's prose you know her her ability to paint an image and such it's very restrained but that's also very new england you know so it's very much of its area and it's of its time and i think that's the other thing it's it's not salacious in the least in terms of their affair and everything. But then again, that's also very realistic. And we, we were probably going to get into that in some regard in this, um, in our discussion, but yeah, I actually did like it. And, and, you know, it's still not my favorite book ever or anything like that, but I, you know, I, I, I definitely did like it. Yeah. I enjoyed it in college, but you know, with university studies, of course, Mm. You're rushing through a lot. I mean, I read it, and of course we had our discussions and everything, but because I was able to to vote, I felt like more attention to it because this was the only thing I had to read. Yeah. Rather than at university, you've got to read a lot. Yeah. I, I think I, I liked it a bit more. I probably understood it a bit more. I think I caught more of the details, and I am more mature, I think, as a reader. So I also I liked it. And, yeah, I was just thinking about what you had said I, I think you and I might be similar. I mean, I could probably be simplifying, but I, maybe because you like the dollhouse so much and this might have had similar themes to it mm-hmm. that well, you already found one that was powerful. So this one was like lesser than and you couldn't latch on, which is true for me. Like I read The Hunger Games and then someone lent me Divergent. I was mm-hmm. like, 
this is like the lesser version of Hunger Games. I don't like it. So sometimes if I find something and then something second comes and it's similar to it, it it pales in comparison and I just can't get on board. But at the same time, like then when I was thinking about it now, I was like, well, my appreciation for realist works like like A Doll's House help me appreciate this once again help me appreciate it the way that i did in 30 almost 30 years ago so yeah absolutely uh well i'd like to begin at the beginning as it were with the narrator and it the prologue actually induces what what introduces (laughs) are you inducing a pregnancy labor no 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 the prologue introduces thank you the frame narrator so i've got several questions on this and then i have a specific thing uh on for me page 12 but i'll I'll do the quote but why do you think wharton chose to use a frame narrator Mm. what do we learn about this guy in particular we know he's an engineer is there any detail i mean does that play some significance and is there any similarities between our narrator and ethan from himself I want to say she's going for something objective here. Somebody who, when he hears the story, can be trusted to discern what is... Because by then it's, what, been 20 years, so he can discern what's the urban legend and the actual facts. I did he say, I can't remember if he said what type of engineer. Are we talking like a train engineer? Or are we talking like a architect oh, yeah. engineer? You know, like a, like a STEM you know, science, science, technology, and that type of engineering. So I don't, I don't know um, off the top of my head. But either way, I think it just suggests a more logical, analytical mind. I think he's maybe like what Ethan would have been had he not been in this, not been in his marital situation. Because it is implied mm-hmm. that Ethan Frome was a smart gentleman who really could have gone somewhere and. If he doesn't outright blame Zenobia for his state, his lot in life, um, I'm sure that there were murmurs around town that, you know, be, that, you know, that her illness and all that kind of I don't know if the word cuckold is the right way to put it, but that's sort of, you know, that he's kind of mm-hmm. trapped in this marriage. I think that this is a credible narration because he seems to be presenting us what was going on in Ethan's head and what he could discern and allows us to make the judgment that you were making through your entire synopsis of whether or not Maddie actually felt the way Ethan did, or if Ethan was like imagining this in his head, you know? So, but Mm -hmm. I think, I think that it's subjective enough that we can make that call as readers and he's not making it for us. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think having this outside observer, really works well because just that quote that I said at the end of my synopsis, there was so much opinion and feeling and connection to those lives because that woman had been with them for a long time. So hearing a story from a townsperson, it would be laden with opinion, you know, out their own opinions and perspectives on things that had happened. So we, we get a, a different, perhaps trustworthy. That'll be my second question perspective from from the narrator there he i believe he's an electrical engineer that he had been oh yeah he had been sent employers on a job connected with the big powerhouse at corbury Junction. okay and powerhouse means a station generating electricity okay so i i assume electrical engineer and yeah i agree that ethan yeah he's intelligent it seemed like he could have gone on some sort of career path so 
it's almost like the narrator is the Ethan that could have been had he gotten yeah had he got you know of of Starkfield yeah I agree and I think a huge scene however small it is is when the narrator accidentally leaves his book I guess in the in the in the sled mm-hmm. uh, I think it was bio engineering or biochemistry or something like that and and ethan was reading it and he said like i i didn't understand half the things but he was reading it at least so i felt like that was a pretty big moment. yeah it might have sparked a little bit of the old person in him you know the the thing that like and and i think we all get this as we get into middle age those things that we loved to learn or the things we wanted to learn more about and something sparks it and and we just he had that moment where he remembered what it was that he loved about it. You know, that's sort of a nice reminder and it's, it's bittersweet, but he's, he's almost excited in the way that mm-hmm. he's talking to him about the book and everything. Cause it's like, Oh, here's somebody who's learned and, you know, yeah. and, and, and when we get to the end and we see the situation he is in, we understand. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was the most, I think he talked to mm-hmm. him with the exception of the story potentially. So I think that shows a lot. So I want to ask, so he said he's an outside perspective, that we could potentially trust him, but there's this interesting word that is used. For me, it's on page 12. It's right before the break to chapter one. And he enters into, or at least Ethan says, come in. And then the narrator says, it was that night that I found the clue to Ethan Frome and began to put together this vision of his story. So I feel like this this term is really interesting. Whose vision is it? Is it the narrator's or Ethan's? And, and do you think that what follows, what we're actually reading in this novella is credible? Like, is this actually what happened or is this just the imaginings of the narrator putting together a little detail? I think it's a little bit of both. I want to say, so, because the prologue and then we go into, it's the it's a framing device. So the, mm-hmm. the next part of it is um, this narrator in this house is uh, the querulous drone ceased as I entered Frome's kitchen. And that's all that's after the accident yeah. when we come back. So it's the entire novel takes place between between those like two moments, you know, and yep. it's, so it's it's told sort of uh, from that perspective. I, and maybe I'm maybe I'm inferring a little too much here. I was inferring that he had heard the story via gossip and you know when people gossip about a story, especially one that's as well known in town as this, it becomes very exaggerated or there's delicious mm-hmm. details put in there. And who is responsible for what is, you know, there, there's different perspectives, there's different opinions. And he is will observe these people in their in their where they are and knowing some of the facts based on what he's heard in town, he starts to piece his own story together. But like I said, I think his role as an engineer suggests a sense of logic and a sense of rationale that say a writer coming in who would add flourish wouldn't do. Not that engineers can't add flourish to things. They certainly can. But I think the stereotypical thing is it's just a mathematical mind. So so um, that's where I think that this is a credible, credible retelling, because he's trying to he's there. What's the, the term Occam's razor? It's like the, the best, ex, easiest yeah. explanation is the one that's the, the simplest. And I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to cut through all of this to find what the actual truth is. And this is as close as we get. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the 
great things about this frame narrator mm-hmm. because it's it's a lot of setup and in the beginning there's I, there's kind of this mysterious element to it and a bit of intrigue but i agree that if you're not on board for the whole novel like that could potentially turn yeah. you off because the narrator's just setting it up we, we haven't even really gotten to ethan yeah. Rome. And then, but once you get back to the end and you like everything comes together and you're kind of shocked at what happened because at the end of Ethan's vision, you feel like, well, maybe Maddie's, but no, look at what has happened. I, I think it does this great, this great thing. I'm not sure if I could put my finger on like, what is it exactly? But it's just like this, I don't know, innocent setup that could be boring, but the end is is really i think what what packs a punch and and really crafts i think this tragic story because uh, it's tragic throughout but i feel like that punch really happens at the end once you find out what happened but you're right there is just a beat because it's not like ethan's there talking with these two women in front so it, it seems like it would be the narrator but he wasn't able to get as much information out of people so i don't know if i fully am on board with you there mm. but even if, if it's Ethan, if it's Ethan's vision, it's like, that's why I feel like it's really interesting. And even my Norton said that, you know, critics disagree. Some critics to see the story is fundamentally the narrator's rather than Ethan's or vice versa. So it's pretty interesting because who it, it seems to be in Ethan's POV. Mm-hmm. So that would be my only... I guess question is, if it were the narrator, wouldn't he have been able to supply Maddie's feelings right away? But it's all on Ethan's, in Ethan's perspective, and so we don't necessarily know what Maddie's feelings are until the very end. What do you think about that? That's a good point. That That's where I was the whole time I was reading, and I was thinking about what he has to say about how he feels about her. And my thought was, well, she might not feel the same way, buddy. You know, you're not entitled to this woman. (laughs) And that's a very modern or that's a very contemporary way of looking at this. You know, we've had a lot of discussions in our culture about that male entitlement to a girl you on which you have a crush. Yeah. And we don't get many hints as to whether or not she likes him. We don't know if she's playing coy. Mm-hmm. We don't know if she is even, if it's even registering with her. So, yeah, it reminds me of hunger game zero because we had that similar discussion with Coriolanus because it's all in his mm-hmm. head. And at least on my part, I wondered, well, does uh, Lucy gray even like him at all? And he was actually calling her his and all of that. So it's, it's, it's rather. Similar. Yeah. That's a really, really good point, too. Well, let's see here. Right after this, there are a bunch of dots, which I know is a page break. But as we progress into the novella, especially as we get towards the end end, there are many ellipses. And I wondered what you thought of these. I mean, I'm on what chapter would this be? chapter nine yeah it just seems like as we progress to the end many of the paragraphs end in just a dot 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 i wondered what you made of these do you think there's any significance to them do you have any uh, personal opinions on ellipses hmm yeah i'm looking at them i don't i really didn't really give it much thought to be completely honest with you um it unless she's there in the sled is it I don't know. Is it just like that he was making some sort of gesture? Is it like to to 
to illustrate some sort of tension or awkwardness in the conversation, um, especially when it's in dialogue, like is it like stilted in a way? I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it's interesting because my first my knee jerk being a, a classicist is something and I don't know if English literature has this very same term, but in Latin, there's something called an apostiopesis, mm-hmm. which is a sudden breaking off of speech. So someone will be talking, and then they'll just stop suddenly and switch subjects to something else. And so I wondered, like, is that what's happening here? Uh, it might be. Um, I've used it, if I was using it in fiction writing, I think I used ellipsis in dialogue when somebody was getting cut off or sometimes I use a dash too, or somebody was trailing off because in journalism, the use of ellipsis is often, um, and this is also in, in just academic writing. Um, if you have it in the middle of a sentence, it's the, it's an omission, you know, that, that you're, you're condensing something, you're leaving something out for length's sake. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not, I don't think that's what's happening here, but I think, I think it's very close to what you were, you were talking about and considering Wharton was pretty, well-educated, I wouldn't be surprised if she picked up this Celia. She's doing that, yeah. It just seems to increase. Like, it happened maybe once or twice in in the beginning, like, throughout, and then all of a sudden, Chapter 9, it just kept, like, these these thoughts and everything. And it could, I think, going to what you were saying, kind of the struggle, too, because it's all happening with this, this talk of, should we basically commit suicide and then the actual accident, all of this stuff and, and content. Yeah. So it could be also, yeah, struggle and and trying to come to, to terms with what they're doing. But I just found that rather interesting. Yeah. That's a really good point. Would you, let's see, uh, I put cycles as, as one of these things. Do you feel like a theme of this novella could in fact be about cycles and, and just that we, I don't know. Let's see here. We try to get out of something like a situation that we're in, but only to find ourselves in that again. Like it's an, the, just the, the lives that they're leading, they were never going to get out of it. And and I kind of think of, I do think of it a bit. You've read it, yeah. right? Okay, and you've probably seen it as well. Now, I don't remember his name, but the guy, the kid, whose mother was kind of forcing on him hypochondria. Oh, um, Eddie. With the yeah, asthma. and then he ends up marrying someone very similar to yeah. his mother who also kind of had that situation. I, I kind of think about that. But I just wondered, because we find out with Ethan that he was caring for his mother, and then Xena uh, came to help out, and then his mother died. He asked Xena to stay and marry him, and then she becomes sick, kind of this cycle here. Uh, and, and I just wondered, you know, on a base level, would Ethan be so enamored with Maddie if she didn't talk to him and, and was able-bodied as Zena was originally, and, and was he ever going to get out of that situation or would have just turned into the, the same thing? Would you say that the, the a theme could be cycles, or do you think that's too simplistic? Um, I, no, I think it's, it speaks to something. I think you're onto something there, whether it's a theme or just a motif because it's a recurring pattern. But, yeah, there is something to be said about the fact that he seems to be cycling through, you know, these two relationships and, and the same thing is happening again. It's not unheard of. It's not unheard of that you that that some men marry women who are very much like their mothers or or in a similar situation and vice versa. You know, and, and we see it. We see it with spouses who 
On a very sad note, we see it with spouses who enter into abusive relationships because they've come from abusive relationships in terms of their parents and stuff. So like, so the idea that one, that a marriage can, can be cyclical in the sense of the way it had, you know, a a relation with a parent or, or um, a second marriage can result, you know, can, can cycle through the same way a first marriage did is not unheard of in our society. So yeah, I think, I think it's a, and, and it speaks to the realism, especially since there was nothing salacious about his original courting of Zenobia uh, to my mind. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. she was, it's not like he, she was caring for his first wife and then he slept with her and then, Right. And then all of a sudden here she's they're married and here comes the new girl and he's going to sleep with this one. You know, that's not what's going on here. But but yeah, but I think I think you're right. I think there's and I think it speaks to the realism here because it's I don't know. It, 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 I'm not approving of their of their of his want for an affair with her. But it seems very it seems very realistic that he would start to develop these feelings for this for this young woman who's around him all the time and is way more receptive to him and way less harsh in his mind than his wife is. And that's how Zenobia was originally. Mm -hmm. So do you think if Zenobia weren't in the picture that he would have such feelings for Maddie? Or is it just the circumstance again? Because this is exactly what happened the first time. I want to say the circumstances are dictating this in a big way. That that he is fundamentally unhappy. And um, it's not that he has fallen in love with Maddie on a level that is like, you know, very, very pure. I think he's just there's just a there's a newness to her and there's a nostalgia of from when he was a much more vibrant young man. And Mm -hmm. um, that's bringing stirring all these things up in him. So um, that that's what I think is going on. Yeah, it seems like his feelings for these women come from his desire to not be alone and to have someone to talk Mm -hmm. to and yeah so i i've always considered this affair to be mostly emotional though there is a physical aspect to it at least towards the end but it just seems like talking Mm -hmm. and and having that emotional connection is is the the most of the adultery that we we, we see? Today. Yeah. Oh, I think, and I think that's a really realistic portrayal of, of of a situation like that because I would imagine there are plenty of people who have had an emotional affair, so to speak, but have had developed feelings for somebody they are around yet they never act on them, you know, uh, because mm-hmm. they just don't have because because I don't know they know better. You know, or yeah. or or there is an actual dissonance going on there and that the person that they would be cheating on is somebody they genuinely love, you know, like, you know, it, mm. it, it, here it's presented in a very stark, very stomach stereotypical way. You have the you have the shrewish wife and the um, and the and the loving and, and, the, the, and the pretty young thing. It could be it could be much more complicated where like, you know, this person like maybe what if Zenobia was like middle aged and, and vibrant and, you know he really did love her in a sense, but also Maddie. So there's that, that conflict of, we could have that too. But, um, but even with the stereotype, it's a very realistic inner conflict for him. Yeah. So you just called Zenobia a shrew. And, and one of my questions actually is, does the story demand that Zenobia be so unlikable? Could it work in any other way? I want to say for its time, I don't know if it would have, you know, in the now, 
Uh, that's a good question. I guess it would depend on who the author or the narrator wants us to have sympathy for. Yeah. Like if he's genuinely, if we see some genuine affection for Zenobia, but then the same, the same wanting to cheat on her with Maddie, I think we lose. I don't know if we lose some of the sympathy or if I guess it depends on and how the, the book would end. And I think we might lose some of the sympathy if the book ends the same way it does, even if Zenobia was was portrayed as way more likable. But I think our feeling toward these two and what they do at the end is a lot less pitying and a lot more um, uh, annoyed or disgusted. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you've got you've got your what like it's like, you know, if Zenobia was this was this great woman portrayed in a way that's great like you know oh, you know you, you don't know how lucky you have it and you're gonna throw it all, all away like you're like really frustrated here with wharton what wharton is doing is being uh, is showing us a woman who we as the reader might be oh i can totally see why you would want to hook up with maddie you know and i know i'm coming off as totally sexist here but i'm just trying to think of it in the way that like a, a man of that type might think it through Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, for me, I think the only way that I could feel sympathy for Ethan and, and I know this sounds bad, but almost condone the emotional affair is if Zenobia is portrayed the way she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I do feel bad for him and I'm like, well, there's this caring person that he has with him. If Zenobia were this kind-hearted person that was able-bodied and everything, then I'd be like, Ethan, from your yeah. jerk, what are you doing? I despise you. And then, you know, I can't get on board with that character whatsoever. And then, yeah, the ending completely changes. I think, yeah, annoyed, frustrated, like, you're dumb, you deserve that fate, all of that. But because of this, it's like, it's really conflicted, I, I think. Uh, while I, I'm sorry that Zenobia is portrayed like this, uh, I think it, it does create conflicted feelings from the reader and that's what makes it for me a more enjoyable tale because it is complicated and you're potentially condoning things that you know as you know someone living maybe you shouldn't Mm -hmm. in real life I mean living you know you shouldn't so I feel like yes I I think the story completely changes if she is likable yeah I think you're right so and I think the and I think your reaction to the ending changes as well because you, you, in one hand, you might feel pity for them. In the other hand, you're like, well, you two get what you deserve. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay. So let's talk about the setting. So we'll talk about both the economic setting as well as just like the setting of the, of the whole story. So the setting is, of course, wintertime in this little hamlet. How does it play a role in the story? Not only this town and perhaps the townsfolk that we have in there as well, since this is a smaller town and everyone knows each other, but also the weather. Well, I mean, first of all, this this is this is like um, an out of character, no pun intended, type of novel or novella for Wharton, who really, like as you pointed out in your bio, was writing a lot and, and lampooning um, New York society of the time of the Gilded Age, the late Gilded Age. And I don't know why I like her doing that more than I like what Jane Austen does with rich, boring white people in England, but that's a whole other discussion. So this is something that's different. These people are like very, very, they're not very, very poor. They're, they're I don't know if working class is the, is the right way yeah. way to put it. And the town itself, the setting, I think really, really works because everybody's so isolated. It's, it, it is really mm-hmm. cut off. 
you know, to the point where like they they aren't coming and going from the town all the time. Like, you know, Zenobia goes over a couple of towns over to get some treatment and it's like a couple of days, you know, it's, th- there's that feeling of being alone that is, that is ramped up by being snow, not snowbound, but, but in new England in winter, which is, there's a lot of snow being talked about, you know, the, the, the relationship you have with the town folk and stuff at a place like that is, is very much a character in itself. He's well known before the accident, and he's well regarded. And I think that helps us uh, see the drastic, how drastic the action he takes is when he when he does it. Even if it's kind of subtle, and he does this whole thing into the tree and everything, everybody respects this guy. It's not like he's known for being, um, you know, scum or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that scene is really telling where he's talking to. Guess was Mrs. Hale. Yeah, yeah. And just like her approving, and like that completely changes his mind on things. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, however small the town is, and that you you are able to leave because there's a train station, it does also seem very isolating and isolated. Mm -hmm. Just the characters seem like they can't leave for whatever reason or if they do need to leave it's a huge thing like his idea to run away with maddie was involving all of this stuff that an, another couple had done and it seems like wow you really got to go out of your way and i think there was a time that he and zenobia were going to leave but she ended up not liking the idea because i guess she was going to be a, a nobody in the next town but she liked being known by people mm-hmm so I feel like that's true. And that's true of winter because I feel like winter and especially in northern areas, the snow can create an even more isolated feeling because you're sometimes trapped indoors and it just kind of exacerbates situations that may already be there. And then with the, the townspeople, and I had seen a couple years ago, unfortunately it, it wasn't on Broadway for very long, but uh, The Bridges of Madison County made into a musical, which was it's lovely. I highly recommend the soundtrack. And the, the townspeople, and I mean it's based off of the novel, based off of yeah. the film, but the, the townspeople are on stage at all times. They'll be sitting, so no matter what the scene is, I think they did come off during like the intimate scenes, but even if they're not interacting, they would be sitting on in chairs on the stage to show like the small town that everyone knows everyone's business. And that's sort of the idea I get from this as well, that people know everything. That yeah. going on. It, it seemed like at the very end, you realize that the younger Mrs. Hale and other people probably knew of this infatuation that Ethan had with Maddie or, you know, the flirtation. So people knew more than I think Ethan knew because it was always kind of dubious, like who knows what, what does Zenobia know? Cause he could only interpret so much. So that's the other thing with the townspeople. And then for the narrator, of course, they're giving him the little nuggets of information and adding to that mystery. But I feel like in Ethan's world, it's, yeah, these people that, <laughs> Look suspiciously at his motives. What's he doing with this girl? That kind of thing. Everyone yeah. knows everyone's business. And then if you're doing something, it's not only going to affect you and the person you're directly doing that to, which would have been Zenobia, but his reputation would have been destroyed too, whether or not he had stayed in town or not. Yeah. Um, whether or not. No, it's a really, so. really good point. Yeah, and it's and it's a almost a trope at this point of that type of setting. Yeah. 
money you you touched on it a bit mm-hmm. um i don't know if you want to go into this more and did you add this the yeah jar well, I, I, have I added initially? that okay okay yeah so how does money affect this plot since it is different from the status quo that's not i guess not really right but what wharton traditionally writes it is different mm-hmm. and then why is that pickle jar so important to zenobia because like i jokingly said in the synopsis it is actually a huge moment yeah. <laughs> which is funny in terms of a novel like a pickle a pickle dish or whatever I breaking pickle jar huge. sorry it's so a pickle why dish. is it yeah i think it it's is a dish, a dish it's a dish it? i put pickle jar okay. because was... uh yeah so you go first what um, are your thoughts? well as far as the pickle dish is concerned it's it's i, I remember it was like the big symbol that we had to that we had to look at when we were in, in sophomore year. And I can't remember what my, um, what my, uh, teacher said it represented. Sorry, Mrs. Tabor, <laughs> but I, I, it represents something about Zenobia and the fact that she always hoped to be, like you said, she wants to be important. And this was like, it was a wedding gift and it was like one of them. It was like yeah. the most expensive wedding gift they ever got. And it wasn't sitting carelessly out it was in a locked china cabinet and maddie had gotten it out because she and ethan were going to have dinner together and everything and and it was like there's something very childish of like we broke mom's prized oh thing you know it's totally that that's the moment and she's devastated by seeing it and she's probably also devastated by the deception at which they try to pull in terms of you know the cat knocked it over, you know, like, in other words, like, and, and, and Zenobia was like, you know, this is, you're, you're, you're BSing me because I know that like, I keep this, I know where I keep this thing. I know where everything in this house is. Don't try it. So they're like two kids who got caught doing something wrong, but it, it represents, I don't know, maybe an ambition of hers or maybe a dream of hers that also got thwarted by whatever it was, her marriage, her sickness or whatever, um, you, you get the feeling that she wishes she was something more than she is. Uh, that's where you feel a little bit of sympathy toward her that maybe Wharton was trying to get, or maybe it was inadvertent, that she is not by choice as bitter. She became bitter over time. And um, and this jar, is just, this, this pickle dish is kind of symbolic of like what she could have been, because they don't have a lot of money either. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, he's trying to raise money they can afford the girl to come help but you know it's it, money is tight as it tends to be in those towns you know among those types of people in those towns so again this was another thing that just represented a better place better life or something that was an aspiration for her and now even that is dashed and that's why she's so she's so upset mm-hmm. um and it might who wrote this it symbolized their marriage too i don't know <laughs> I don't oh, know. <laughs> well, it was a wedding. Yeah, it was gift. a wedding gift. So it's and maybe it's it symbolizes something about her and 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 you know everything else. So you know who knows. Yeah, it's interesting how much she lashes out, and I I can under I understand that it's so important to her, but just I think she says something to Maddie like I always knew you were a bad girl or a bad something I don't know or an evil mm-hmm. creature or something. So it, like she really lets loose. After this pickle, Jezebel. But, <laughs> but I don't think I could add anything to your analysis. That's certainly what I think as well. You know, this most this precious thing, and I think that's true. That's like a completely realistic thing of people today. The pickle dish is like a status symbol. Really great, I, I think yeah. we see that of people today, and I mean, I could think of 
impoverished youth you know and they have really nice shoes and it's something that they're able to I, I think they care for their shoes and yeah this could also be wrong too but I I've experienced this and that I think is a status symbol and that's almost like to tell people that I'm okay even though if you like were to go see their home life it was actually not okay so I feel like that's a, a completely realistic thing even though it's a pickle dish that I don't know what that looks like I should google it hmm uh, and then money itself, yeah. I mean, it does come up in, in really interesting ways. I mean, he catches, he is caught in a lie about the $50 because that's, uh, Zenobia heard him say he was going to get in advance and that allowed her to get the girl and then that was a lie. And um, then he's going to try to get some more money to run away. And then he didn't. And that, yeah, so the money, I think the, these people, they're like on the cusp of white collar and below white collar if something exists. I don't know what that would be. But just like working. If they didn't work, they would be in dire straits. Yeah, I think you're right. And and he is he is very much in those dire straits toward the end there because he's like, dirt poor trying doing his best to take care of both of the women yeah. at the very end of the novel yeah it's gotten worse i guess with his now disability yeah he can't work as, yeah, he can't yeah, work as much as much yeah well i guess let's talk about this ending and we'll we'll set it up with the foreshadowing i did mention and then we'll talk about the ending uh well the i guess the climax of the novel, the novella, and then mm-hmm. <laughs> the epilogue and everything. And Tom, I think Tom has, <laughs> he's got a question in there. I can tell that it's him. So as I said, she seeds, no pun intended, but that time the pun intended, she seeds what's going to happen, though we don't really realize the, just the oak tree. The oak tree pops up a lot. Mm-hmm. So Besides that, does she do anything else to foreshadow what's going to happen? Would you say that is effective? I'm trying to think. I don't know. Um, like I know that there's there's she's really she's really effective in terms of like the tension between the two of them through the entire this, especially the tension that he thinks he's feeling, and then we realize that he has been feeling. The romantic tension between the two of them. I don't know if that counts as foreshadowing. So I, 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 I don't know. What do you think? It could be, yeah, because I kept saying that word in the in the synopsis, and it's interesting because it's certainly tension on his side. So I, I think, yeah, potentially she that could be foreshadowing of maybe Maddie and he finally revealing their feelings towards the end. Just that he kept questioning and wondering whether, 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 mm-hmm. and then it actually, it actually did happen. So yeah, the oak tree and perhaps their feelings. I don't know if anything else. Like even though I remembered enough from the first time, I feel like the first time I read it, I wondered if Zenobia would have outed them, or you know, was she going to do anything? Because it seems like she is aware of what's going on. At least I'm interpreting her looks and her actions as being aware. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that would consider. I, I mean, the biggest thing is the oak tree. I feel like, and and him constantly talking about that term being dangerous and and all of that stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to see if they had if if she had if she had seeded anything regarding the pickle dish. 
but even then I'm not even sure. I think it's just um, I think the tension is foreshadowing that something has to happen in some regard between these two romantically. And mm-hmm. uh, and it, it eventually does, even if it's on a very simple level. But, you know, and then it ends in tragedy. But other than that, no, I can't. I can't think of it. But then again, you don't have a lot of space to do a ton of foreshadowing and stuff like this. You know, it's not yeah, a very long true. book. So Does the introductory scene, I guess it's not the intro, but the first time we see Ethan? I think, or at least the dance. I'll just Mm -hmm. say the dance. Do you feel like that foreshadows anything? I mean, it reveals a bit about his character, but does that show anything about what their relationship is going to be like and kind of the struggles throughout? Would you say that that's more of a crucial scene than it would seem at first glance? or first? I would say, yeah, I think it sets up the tension and it it represents how he feels that he is still on the outside of like who this girl is and, and whether or not she has any feeling for him, you know, Again, it helps yeah. us establish that doubt in our minds that she actually cares or thinks about him in the way that he thinks about her. You know, yeah. it's not creepy. Yep. And and I think I think that if, if you talked to an average teenager today and you told them about this, and you saw that I'd get at least one or two be like, oh, he's a creeper. I don't think yeah. it's creepy. It's not portrayed as malicious. It's just portrayed as kind of sad. Hmm. So you'd be okay with Edward Cullen watching Bell Swan sleep? You know. <laughs> I don't like any of that. Oh gosh. Okay. Cuz it's not like cuz the dancing it's 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 short in terms of the time in which he does it. It's it's pa- these yes. all the things about that that infatuation happened almost between the moments, like in the passing thoughts of his, you know, and as opposed to I'm going to sit here and watch you sleep and things like that, you know, that 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 is creepy. And that that is a sense of establishing ownership and entitlement over somebody here. There is a little bit of that, but we feel sympathy toward him because of the fact that he is lonely and he is mm. frustrated and he is he is a, just a very sad individual. So that's why we get a little bit more sympathy for him rather than this sort of like, you know, again, toxic masculinity that we see in other <gasps> things. Yeah. I don't think I can add anything to that. It was. Mm-hmm. And you also see I think he's you see him as a passionate man inside. But he checks his feelings a great deal. And I think that that's also something that is seated potentially in this scene, but and you continue to see it. For example, he never he doesn't touch Maddie for a very long time. He touches the thread that she's touching. That's as close as he'll get. And he he revisits scenes and wishes, you know, why couldn't I have touched her hand or something like that. He gets super angry at Zenobia and balls up his fist, but doesn't make any sort of move towards her. And in this scene, I think it all begins because he gets so angry at Dennis Eady, but, you know, mm-hmm. there's no confrontation or anything. Yeah. So you kind of see, I guess, this internal, yeah. external struggle that Ethan and, has. So we get to learn yeah. a bit more. And about that's that. very typical New England. You know, that okay. that's very stoic, Protestant, derived from Puritan New Englander who is, you know, man who does not show a lot of emotion, even if they do struggle gotcha. with it. Man. 
Okay, so in chapters 8 through 9, Ethan, he's weighing his options. What does he do? Does he stay? Does he leave? If he leaves, how does he manage it? How is his decision to stay rather than run away with Maddie in keeping with his personality? He's always done what he's obli- been obligated to do. You know, he stayed with his mother, and he is, again, the, getting into that Protestant work ethic and that pro- that, that idea of, of what a man is supposed to be doing and that that he is too old to be impulsive and he has his obligations to his situation so he can fantasize about it and even start to plan it but in the end no he 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 is he has his duty and he's going to do his duty Ooh. yeah I mentioned I think in my synopsis it felt a bit like Antigone that struggle mm-hmm. between you know your duty yeah. and your heart or, or and what you want to do and uh, i'm i'm happy that he made that decision we can talk about the other one because even though again you know zenobia seeing that and and there's a lot of sympathy that i have for ethan and wanting him to i guess be his best self and and be healthy and maybe that's the best thing but recognizing that he's I, this is not a solipsistic novel, you know, that it's all about yeah. Ethan, but he recognizes that there are other people in his, that he needs to, to care about. And so he would cause so much damage in doing that. And yeah, I don't even know what would happen to Zenobia, but she would not fare well. I mean, he does consider that she could go to relatives and things like that. So it's potential that she wouldn't necessarily die, but it, it would be just... I don't know, catastrophic if he had left. So, yeah, this is, I mean, he stayed with his mother. I think it's it's also the easier route. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to make him sound... Wishy-washy? <laughs> wishy-washy, yeah. I, I don't want to, yeah. I don't know if that, yeah, I guess we can go with wishy-washy. I, I don't want to make him sound, but it, it seems like, you know, he was thinking of alt wall. He, he wouldn't have the money because... I, well, he didn't have it. And then weaving and, and throwing, you know, the shackles of the world. Well, how would they get money? How would they travel mm-hmm. across country? Like, that is clearly the harder choice anyway, the more difficult choice. But, so, yeah. But does yeah. he even think about it if Maddie's not going away? Yeah, that's true. It's a desperation that's going on that he he's just really the, – the sadness and the desperation that takes all the sadness of Maddie was – to be with him and in the home despite all that happened uh mm-hmm. it's very possible that he might not have been so desperate and so like kind of impulsive in his thinking yeah yep yep okie dokie so then we're going to get to this accident here <laughs> and this is your question here would you do you consider this accident tragic or stupid <laughs> Um, on some level, it's kind of stupid. It's like, what are you doing? Like, how could you possibly have thought that that would actually kill you? <laughs> like, it's just, I mean, I know, okay, well, didn't, well, people have, people well, have hold died on by now. running hold into giant on. trees like that, but it was just one of those things where it's just like, you know. I mean, it makes sense for, if only because I snowboard. And uh-huh. didn't Bono, not Bono. Sonny Bono. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Thank you. Yes, Bono. He did didn't he get killed yeah. by, yeah. And then Liam Neeson's wife, though, I think she like hit a patch of that's ice. True. And, that's and true. So people head. can die, but it's just one of those things yeah. where it's like, now granted, he's not thinking rationally. Because if you think of it rationally, if you are actually going to go through with this, there are, there are more su- efficient ways to do it together 
you know, you could Thelma and Louise yourself over a cliff, right? If you want to go out like that. Not once did it go through their heads, what if we survive? You know, like... Yeah. I guess, I I feel like that's almost his fault because the entire time, whenever this tree was mentioned and making the rundown, it was always about how dangerous it was and that it's, you know, fatal and everything. So it's, I guess it was in her mind that, of course... If we, if we hit it straight on, we'll yeah. die. Now, the tragedy is in what happens as a result, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. it is tragic. But at the same time, it's it's just kind of like, what did you think was going to happen? And you're and you're. But again, it kind of matches up, though, with the way he's been looking at her the entire book that mm-hmm. he's like so like the, the way he thinks about it and, and the, the the weird way he formulates these plans and everything. It's it, it's childish or adolescent in its method in that like he is a full adult and he does the responsible adult things and that's what he is deciding he is going to do but the the way maddie makes him behave is almost like an impulsive teenager and here it has the tragic result yeah and and it's interesting that it makes him go back on the big decision that he made to stay with zenobia yeah so, because now she's going to be in the situation that he didn't want to leave her in, which is interesting. Physically, physics-based, I suppose, the heavier person should be in back. So I don't know if that had anything to do, like maybe they slowed it down. Also, she wasn't, I, I feel like, skilled at steering. So I don't know if, you know, things went into it that, you know, could have could have uh, mitigating circumstances. But it's, uh, I feel like it's tragic in the sense, yes, the aftermath for sure the epilogue basically i think it's tragic that they were driven to do this like this was the only way you know seal their happiness and remember it forever i mean you talked about the play as you refer to it i mean i know what you're talking about but listeners of course is Romeo and juliet i mean i'm thinking about that kind of thing as well and how many we've seen many i feel like interpretations of any teen love that you oh know, yeah we should die together yeah. rather than live alone kind of situation but yeah it was it was not well thought through i think it's it's so it's quick and impulsive which i think gets to your point of maddie's influence on him and i i think it's romantic in the sense of the atmosphere like he took her through this little let's go through our history together Mm -hmm. and they had one good sleigh ride and so now it's like let's remember this forever and kill ourselves so i think they were all wrapped up in the romance and they well at least maddie was like this is a great idea and he's like well we can't say no to her so yeah i was shocked The first time I read, I was like, "You've, you've got." I mean, I was more shocked by the ending, ending. But it's, it's just pretty interesting. Do you have any idea the weight? He talks about a weight being on him, and as far as I can tell, she's not on top of him. Mm. Is it the sled? Maybe it's what, the what do sled. I don't know. I, okay, I, I, I the first I thought it was her, but I don't think it is. Yeah, because it seems like she's neck. Just the way he has to reach to get to her. I mean, it says he dragged himself to his knees, the momentous load on him moving with him as he moved. So, and, and now it was, so he thought, rather than her, the twittering, the thought of the animal's suffering was intolerable to him as he struggled to raise him. Not It could not because a rock or some huge mass seemed to be lying on him, but he continued to finger about cautiously with his left hand, thinking he might get hold of the little creature and help it. 
And all at once he knew that the soft thing he had touched was Maddie's hair and that his hand was on her face. Um, he dragged himself to his knees, the monstrous load on him moving with him as he moved, and his hand went over and over her face as he felt that twittering come from her lips. I don't know unless it's unless unless that's the way she describes like his is half his body kind of paralyzed because of it or an oh, injury or something yeah. like he can't That's move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only other explanation I can come in, up with considering he doesn't exactly seem to articulate what is on top of him. Yeah. Boy. Mm. Well, I mean, I had assumed she would die the first time I read mm-hmm. it, but we find out oh. that this is not true. She has in a way become Zenobia. Yeah. And Zenobia has kind of, I don't know, muted a bit. Like, her personality is kind of taken a background. She's the caretaker again. And then Ethan, and I guess they bicker a lot. They really go after each other, we find out, from the mm-hmm. neighbor. And Ethan is just suffering. So I've got a couple questions just on, on this ending. One of them being, why does Zenobia care for Ethan and Maddie at the end? But we can start with just how does this epilogue the the second frame how does it surprise us what are its ironies the surprise i think is what you just said i didn't expect maddie to live and i knew he we all knew he was alive anyway and then so the surprise is the reveal it's a reveal scene at the end there and i think the irony of course is that maddie has become bitter and then the the way zenobia was you know there's no there's no affection for him she probably blames him. So, and is she does it does it imply that she's paralyzed? Like her, the extent of her injuries are pretty bad, yeah. from what I understand. I don't know if she how verbal she is either. And then Zenobia just kind of like snaps too. All of a sudden, she's like, it's implied she was essentially a hypochondriac, and she snaps too, and she's suddenly better, and she takes the caretaker role. And I'm like, was it psychological? And now does she feel like she has an obligation because she has somebody to take care of? Like, you know, maybe the irony of that was that she, the thing that pained her the most was that she had nobody to take care of, and she didn't like somebody taking care of her. But now mm-hmm. that she does, she's back in her place, and she's found it. I, you know, I mean, perhaps that's one of the motivations for why she, uh, why she behaves the way she does at the end. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps being needed is something that fuels her. I that's very possible actually, yeah. Because maybe that's why I don't know, hypochondriacs I mean, I'm no psychologist and I don't want to insult any hypochondriac out there. But I feel like Part of it is, you know, a need for attention as well as a fear for having diseases. And so maybe, you know, that's one of those things. I mean, she might actually be sickly and ailing. Yeah. But also I think that it's hard for her when she doesn't get attention from Ethan. Ethan's pain is attention mm-hmm. to, to Maddie. Yeah. But now she's got Maddie who's at least an invalid. I can't tell if she's paralyzed. It seems like she's in a chair of some sort or doesn't move as much but it does seem like she's verbal because she has a a long sentence Mm. directed towards hatefully towards Zenobia so potentially that's why she snaps too and and helps them out which is interesting and it all started with Ethan because I think once she found out about him she nursed him back to health yeah so it might be a need so I'll say that she enjoys being needed it gives her purpose perhaps it it um, fills her with power not in like a a crazy way but it just yeah and yeah oh boy i i was shocked i was shocked that maddie lived i uh, just like you said i was shocked that she 
turned into Zenobia, turned into what Ethan was trying to run away from and escape, and was this bright, bubbly creature. And she was Stephanie Brown, and she all of a sudden turned into Batman. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, just a complete... And then he is... He's trapped. He's trapped times two, which is is unfortunate for him. Now he can not get away, and now he's never going to have that happiness that he had of, you know, just talking gently and, and softly with one another. Now it's just like conflict. And he's isolated again, even though he's with these two women. And how awkward, you know, to have, you know, the adulteress with the the wife. My gosh. I mean, I'm sure there's other literature and films that we could reference. None come come to mind, but just great, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess I think that speaks to, to the ironies as well. Just man alive. Who boy. Yeah, and, and that's why I just, well, I guess we can, we talked about, oh yeah, the liking was at the beginning, yeah. but that's why I like it is just like how shocking it is, and then yeah, how tragic, like you're seeing all of this, you're hoping for some sort of happy ending, even if it ends in two deaths, and then you get something worse than two deaths almost, and it's just, it's so sad, but it's also really complicated and conflicting, like you as a reader, kind of like the reader that we read, it, I think it asks you to consider some things and you might think of things that might not be as moral or ethical and and you're just put in an interesting place of what you want you're almost like the lady at the end mrs hale who is saying like it would have been better if they had done mm-hmm. uh and there's not much difference between the the froms on above ground and, and below ground yeah yeah that's that's a really really excellent way to put it and my, my final question is just do you feel like they're living their current living at the end in this epilogue is a consequence of their choices and immoral behavior is is wharton trying to have some sort of parable of this or is this just like this is what happened do you feel like there's anything that we can learn from this i don't know if it's as unsubtle when, like the word parable speaks to me in a way that's like not very subtle and I I, I, mm-hmm. I I feel that she is relating consequences for this for the impulsivity I don't feel that she's being sarcastic or satirical though yeah um, I don't know I, I, I don't I know there is a lesson to be learned here but I don't think that it's as as stark um, I think we're supposed to see it as a tragedy a tragic lesson as opposed to a consequences for your action lessons and it's actually there's actually a bit of a nuance in the difference between the two yeah i'm just trying to think i just feel like in their moment of passion Mm -hmm. when they decided to go this route and then this was the the consequence of what happened and then it really it really turned to crap (laughs) that's an understatement (laughs) yeah i'm trying have we had a novel where the consequences are like really because of their immoral actions. Have we discussed anything on this show yet? Uh, Macbeth, maybe, but oh yeah, but that's those true. characters yeah. die. I think yeah. I think the difference here is that the characters don't die. So, okay. but yeah, Macbeth. I don't know. I'd have to go back and think of think through all of them. Um, there might have been a couple of others, but that's the one that pops into my mind at first. But had they died, though, I mean, that was their intention. Mm-hmm. So would that have been a consequence <sighs> if that if that's what they were intended or because what they intended did not happen? Yeah. Therefore, we, we've got the consequence. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But I mean, I think, yeah, this one, 
maybe I didn't think about it enough because it is it's rather and I agree with you I think it is nuanced mm-hmm. about be, between yeah. but, but she definitely is not subtle about how sad it's supposed to be and how tragic it's oh, supposed absolutely to be. not no yeah hmm. there's something also very voyeuristic about this whole story yeah. like like even though he's presenting or the narrator um, is presenting a story in a way that he's trying to piece it all together and be as objective as possible it's still very gossipy and voyeuristic yeah yeah which is the symptom of of living in a small town mm-hmm. i feel like yeah because it'd be different if it were in a different type of town yeah. those are the questions that i have no i think i think we've covered this pretty well okay. i think we've got one more question left to ask yes tom do you think this is required reading <laughs> Not to a high school student. I think there are, especially since I've been in high school, many, many, many novels that have been published about people falling in love and possibly having bad consequences, etc. That are that are much better. So I would not I would not call this required reading for anybody who is younger. However, if you are somebody who had to read this in high school and didn't like it. I would say that it is a good candidate for a reread in that, like, yeah. it, it deserves a second look when you're older because I got much mm-hmm. more out of it than I did when I was 15. And I think that's that, that's why I say it's not required reading for 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 young adults. But I think for adults themselves, uh, yeah, it's getting pretty close, especially if you had a bad opinion. I would say give this another try. Yeah, I, I think it's required reading. Yeah, for mature mm-hmm readers like once you've i think consumed enough literature but also have grown up yeah and, and i think you've seen more of the world potentially because it is complicated like i said and and trying to understand what these characters are going through and then you're asked i think to experience what they're going through as well as have some sort of p- opinion mm-hmm. on things like you're an active i feel like you're an active participant in this story as you're reading it you're almost one of the townspeople yeah. so i would say yeah I'm, I'm glad i read it in university studies rather than in high school and then again like i said rereading and i felt like i got even more out of it so i would say yes and and just agree with what tom had said okay cool well that's it on ethan from yeah. we don't have any feedback this episode although we kind of knew that going in because we knew that we were going to have um, – because we recorded two episodes back to back. And it's very likely that we are not going to do a feedback section next episode because of, of what we're going to be talking about, which I'll get into in a minute. But in episode 51, um, we expect to be back on the feedback tip. So please send us your feedback, emails, Facebook comments, etc. But next episode is episode 50. This is <gasps> huge. We've been doing this for Man, this long. Man, we made yeah. it. So every episode – you know, starting with 10 and then multiple 10, we've done a special, you know, we covered uh, pop culture books, we covered memoir and autobiography and biography. We talked about uh, empathy in literature and etc. And then uh, novelizations and adaptations. And I, I did those out of order, but but those are the other ones we've done. We're this time around, we're actually taking a different tack. We are actually covering a work of literature. We're covering a novel. It's going to be like a normal episode, except we have for the first time a guest to do this with us. So we thought it would be best for episode 50 
to bring on our friend, fellow podcaster and champion of all things Latvarian, Professor Allen, a.k.a. as Stella likes to refer to him. Professor Cheapskate. Yes, of, of the relatively geeky network, the Quarterbin Podcast uh, Short Box Showcase, as well as the uh, religion and popular culture podcast called Dorkness to Light. Professor Allen is going to come on because we are going to be discussing his favorite novel of all time, and that is Tess of the Durbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Yep. It's finally happened. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like it's almost like oh, he dared us, no. and then we turned around and said, "Well, you know, episode 50 is coming up, so challenge accepted." Yeah, I, yeah. Tom doesn't know what he's getting into, but no, I, I have read this before, and I'm well aware of what's about to happen. The the only the only thing I know is his joke about if you if you want oh. a Thomas Hardy novel with a happy ending, you have to read it backwards. And that um, is at 100 percent true of this one i wanted to throw it across the room so just be prepared for a rage quit on this what the stupid book I just can't believe Nikki's teaching that book to the kids. I mean, it's the whole time. Let me just break it down for you. The whole time you're rooting for this Hemingway guy to survive the war and to be with the woman that he loves, Catherine Barkley. It's four o'clock in the morning, Pat. And he does. He does. He survives the war after getting blown up. He survives it and he escapes to Switzerland with Catherine. But now Catherine's pregnant. Isn't that wonderful? She's pregnant. And they escape up into the mountains, and they're going to be happy, and they're going to be drinking wine, and they dance. They both like to dance with each other. There's scenes of them dancing, which was boring, but I liked it because they were happy. You think he ends it there? No. He writes another ending. She dies, Dad. I mean, the world's hard enough as it is, guys. It's hard enough as it is. Can't somebody say, hey, let's be positive. Let's have a good ending to the story. Pat, you owe us an apology. Mom, I I can't apologize. I'm not going to apologize for this. You know what I will do? I will apologize on behalf of Ernest Hemingway, because that's who's to blame here. Yeah, have Ernest Hemingway call us and apologize to us, too. Oh, oh, fun, 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 fun. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so come back. So come back in January for for us discussing tests with with uh, Professor Allen. And um, we are closing out 2020. So we hope that in spite of everything that has happened this year and in spite of the situation we are in, that you have a happy and a healthy, especially a healthy holiday season. Um, and we wish the best to you and 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 your loved ones. Uh, so as always, um, thank you very much for listening to us and take care. Be kind to one another, love one another, and if you see a tree, make a hard turn away from it, people. Don't go towards it. Yeah, it's it's the same advice given to John Cusack and Better Off Dead. Go that way really fast. <laughs> if something gets in your way, turn. Good night. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. 
If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Someone to hold you too close Someone to hurt you too deep Someone to sit in your chair To ruin your sleep That's true, but there's more than that Is that all you think there is to it? You've got so many reasons for not being with someone, but Robert, you haven't got one good reason for being alone. Come on, you're onto something, Bobby. You're onto something. Someone to need you too much. Someone to know you too well. Someone to pull you up short To put you through hell You're not a kid anymore, Robert I don't think you'll ever be a kid again, kiddo Hey, buddy, don't be afraid it won't be perfect The only thing to be afraid of, really, is that it won't be Don't stop now Keep going Someone you have to let in Someone whose feelings you spare Someone who, like it or not, will want you to share A little, a lot And what does all that mean? Robert, how do you know so much about it when you've never been there? It's much better living it than looking at it, Robert Add him up, Bobby Add him up Someone to crowd you with love Someone to force you to care Someone to make you come through Will always be there As frightened as you Of being alive Being alive Being alive Of being alive Being
much Somebody know me too well Somebody pull me up short And put me through hell And give me support For being alive Make me alive Make me alive Make me confused Mock me with Help us survive Being alive 